When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. Desi's all dressed up right now. She went out to dinner before she got over here. <laughs> and I have a pizza on the way, so we're going to stop the show when also, the pizza I'm gets here. I'm still hungry. I know. But it's uh, a big pizza. You know what? Yeah, I'm hungry. I'm going to get a slice. Let's thank our lovely patrons for this week. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. There you'll find lots of bonus content. We just uploaded a new episode of Mysteries and Macabre. That's our second show that we do that deals with uh, non-Hollywood related crimes and mysteries. So go check that out. Just uploaded that a few days ago. This week we had Audrey, Hannah, Katie, Barbara, Gayla, Dev, Hannah, Hannah. Is that three Hannahs? That's three Hannahs this wow. week. Wow. Jay, Enrique, Catherine, Allie, Lauren, Camille, Jasmine, Tom, Jessica, Dustin, Nick. And that's it. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks a lot. I like Barbara. You like the name Barbara? I always have a soft spot for Barbara's for some reason. I yeah. don't know why. I mean, everyone is wonderful. But you just like the when name Barbara. When I heard Barbara. Barbara, I was like, who's Barbara? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Barbara. <laughs> wow, Desi is a favorite. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So what are we talking about okay. today? Well, Rachel, if you've been living under a rock, which I don't know if you are, you might not know that this is the 50th anniversary of the Manson killings this month. This month. Yeah, uh, August. So obviously that is a major true crime story and a major Hollywood crime story because it took place here and it involved some pretty big celebrities. Yeah. So we're kind of taking it upon ourselves this month to do like an all Manson August. So if you've been waiting for us to do Manson-related content, this is your fucking month because we're going to do a lot of stories this month that are not necessarily about the Manson case in particular, but all kind of connected to it in some kind of way. Yeah. Uh, Just to have like a little special twist on it. Cause you know us, we'd like to be special. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So yeah, we have some exciting things this month. In addition to the stories, we're going to have some cool stuff at the end of the month, I think. Um, So you'll be happy, I think. uh, And we're excited to bring it to you. So, Um, This week, I'm going to talk to you about a case that is sort of, basically, it's like all connected to um, someone who was an original suspect in the the Tate murders in particular. Before they figured out it was Manson. Before they figured out, I, I was telling Rachel earlier, like, which I had forgotten until I was researching these cases. They didn't even know the Mansons were responsible. The Manson family was responsible until like December. Right. Like, so they were still on the hunt. months where they were bringing people in. They had no idea what the fuck was going on. And then a lot of crimes that happened post Tate LaBianca murders 
were sort of always like, is this connected somehow? Like uh, that kind of thing. So um, the person that sort of sparked this episode was, like, as I said before, an original suspect in the Tate murders in particular. He is a man named Ed Durston, and he was kind of like a drug dealer and connected to some even bigger drug dealers. And he was an acquaintance of Vorchek Furkowski, I hope I'm saying that correctly. Uh, one of the victims at the Tate murders, um, I think that that took place on August 9th. So uh, nothing much happened with him as far as him being a suspect. He was uh, kind of, I think, ruled out pretty early on. But less than two months later, he would be in the headlines again because he was there for or a witness to another major Hollywood scandal that took place in October of 1969, and that is the death of Diane Linkletter. Diane Linkletter was born on, on Halloween and was the fifth child born to TV ro- radio personality Art Linkletter and his wife Lois. Now, Art Linkletter is like definitely of that era, so if you don't know who he is, He hosted a show called House Party, which was on CBS radio and television for over 25 years. He also hosted a show called People Are Funny on NBC for their radio and television. Um, One of the popular features on House Party was a segment called Kids Say the Darndest Things. And that was basically like a show where he talked to kids and they would say funny things. And that was actually brought back by Bill Cosby in the late 90s. I remember that. Yeah. So he was kind of like one of those early radio to TV personalities. It was like a pretty big deal. Yeah. But I don't think people really remember him today. But you might know that segment, obviously, that I mentioned. Now, Art was very close to Walt Disney. And in fact, Walt Disney was Diane's godfather. One of like Linkletter's early um, money-making opportunities was that Walt offered him to invest in the Disneyland theme park before it opened, but he had zero hopes that that would be a successful venture Yeah, and did not invest in it. Well, that's a big... That was a I big... I bet he felt like an idiot. <laughs> he felt like a big idiot. Now, he did... Obviously, he's friends with Walt Disney, so he did have some kind of um, connection to the park. I think he did... Was he like, Walt pretended I invested? Yeah, he kind of like did some early... Like He was like, I'll like promote it on my show and like do some ads for it, because he's a big deal at this time. So he did eventually kind of make some money off of his connection to Walt Disney. Uh, I think that he got some kind of rights, exclusive TV rights to sort of talk about Disneyland or sort of like be a host on shows about Disneyland. Yeah. So he did eventually make some money from that despite not investing in the initial project. Right. He also had some other weird kind of investment things. He was a major investor and promoter of the hula hoop when that first broke. Like, like the original hula Yeah, hoop. and I guess that had some kind of trademark initially that you could kind of make money off of it. And he was also um, the, the sort of big endorser and spokesman for Milton Bradley's The Game of Life. Did you ever play that game? Of course. Yeah. Uh, I so, always tried to get the same cards. I always <laughs> tried to get. From, Do you remember putting the little people in the car? Like, like I always tried to get like the rock star slash entertainer card. Oh yeah, the, where you can be like a. I liked job. that game. I liked it I too. Thought it was fun. Yeah. So he actually appeared on the game's initial one hundred thousand dollar bills and on the box and had like a like statement. His face? Yeah. So like probably not the ones that we had, but like the initial ones from uh, the 60s. And he had like his endorsement on the box that said, I heartily endorse this game. So he was like, (laughs) he made money from that uh, as well. So 
I mean, a lot of these people, like, we don't think of them as big stars nowadays, but like, they made a shitload of money because they yeah. were in the early days of TV and they were pretty prolific and on everything, right? Yeah. So he became quite wealthy and kind of became a philanthropist at some point. And he was BFF with one of our um, favorites in quotes, Ronald Reagan. No. So he's in that sort of Hollywood circle, not exactly like the cool circle, right? Like, yeah. So he actually was initially from Canada where he... Um, he was adopted as a baby into a family, uh, grew up in Canada, and it was a very strict upbringing. And this is something that Art passed on as far as his family's teachings growing up to his kids. So he pretty much raised his family in a very traditional environment. The kids were all like happy, and it wasn't like a super traumatic, you know, traditional upbringing. And in the and as like some people had, like maybe with with spankings or whatever like that. Like the kids weren't like unhappy. And then they like also would start appearing in commercials with Art, who did a lot of commercial ads, including his three daughters, in a very like big spot at the time for Kellogg's cornflakes. So they were definitely like this traditional Hollywood family that were doing ads together for like very wholesome products. Yeah. Now, Diane's life started off pretty untroubled. And then in her teenage years, things started to take like a slight turn, which I'm sure is pretty much uh, the case for every teenager. Um, but when you're like in Hollywood, you have a lot of privilege and money and access to things that maybe you don't have right. in any home across America. Uh, so she definitely started testing boundaries and was struggling to find herself, obviously, with a very famous father. So at the age of 17, she actually eloped to a man named Grant uh, Conroy. She initially thought she was pregnant and it was like definitely one of those like, I'm going to do the right thing and marry you type situations. At some point she discovers that she's not pres- uh, pregnant and her parents uh, have the marriage annulled. Um, they never even lived together. Okay. Like She stayed living at her home, um, but this is something that happened. She does eventually start to pursue her own career in entertainment. She tries her hand at acting. She performs in Summerstock. And in 1968, she appears in a sketch on the Red Skelton show. Um, she also travels with her father to Europe to entertain uh, servicemen. Like, that was a pretty big deal back then. Yeah. I, don't, I guess people still kind of do that. My grandma did that. Yeah, it was definitely like a thing that celebrities did back then. And yeah. I guess they probably do, but I don't feel like it's as publicized as it used to be. Um, but nothing really took off for her. I mean, she's young. She's 20, 21 here. Um, and, you know, she's struggling to find herself and find her career. Sadly, it is eventually her death that will bring her the most fame. Like, that yeah. is ultimately what, what, what she will become known for. Okay. So at 9 a.m. on October 4th, 1969, emergency vehicles... Um, arrive at the Shoreham Towers, which is in West Hollywood, and that's where Diane had recently moved. They had found Diane Linkletter on the sidewalk, bleeding profusely from her head. She was still alive when they arrived. Um, A neighbor named Jimmy George, who witnessed Diane's fall from the building where she had rented an apartment, he ran outside to see if he could help her, and she, um, according to him, she looked up at him and could not speak. Jimmy... Uh, didn't know what to do, obviously. And the truth of the matter is there wasn't much he could do. The paramedics arrived on the scene. Uh, She's placed in an ambulance and rushed to the University of Southern California Medical Center. It was there that she would eventually die of traumatic head wounds and injuries all 
all, all on her body, uh, obviously, that she suffered in the fall. And so Diane was pronounced dead, and that was just two weeks shy of her 21st birthday. Now, obviously, the daughter of a pretty major celebrity at the time dies, and people were like, what the fuck happened? Uh, and at, early on, no one knew what happened. Was it a suicide? Was it an accident? Or was it a homicide? So the last person to see Diane alive was the aforementioned uh, suspect in the Tate murders, Edward Durston. Now, Durston said that he saw Diane on the day before her death and that she was depressed and had concerns um, about what her life was. And he, after that, was concerned for her. Uh, Following a date the night before um, she fell out of her building or out of her apartment, she stopped at Durston's apartment uh, and that was about 3 a.m. So he he lived across the street from her. Now, she lived in a building that was like supposedly all like older, much older people. Yeah. So she's like the young in here. But there were like neighbors across the street that were younger people her right. age. And one of them was this guy, Edward Durston. So they became friends. Uh, but there's some other connections I'll get into later. So she stops at his place about 3 a.m. and she's... She asked him to come over, and she says she's going to bake cookies. So at I mean, three a.m. I mean, that would get that's me relatable. To, <laughs> that would get me to come over to you. Totally fine. Like I'm tired, but you're baking cookies. So he goes over. She bakes cookies. They talk for hours. Um, she continues to tell him about that she's suffering from depression. He says that her behavior was, quote, extremely emotional, extremely despondent, and very irrational at times. In fact, most of the time. While they're having this conversation, um, he also says that some of the things she complains about is things I mentioned before, her career, and the fact that she could not be her own person. At some point, she goes into her bedroom and telephones her brother. And according to Durston, when she comes out, she kind of seems calmer to him. During this supposed phone call with her brother, Robert, that um, will eventually lead to the source of this rumor that will happen after her death that's pretty much propagated by the family, including her father, Art, that she had taken LSD. Um, But no one knows what was really said during this conversation. This is just the family saying what it was after the fact. Uh, like she didn't say anything to Edward about, LSD. about what happened during this phone call even. Um, so the fact that she seemed calmer after this phone call, according to Edward is what sort of made him feel better. Uh, he eventually says that he thought everything was fine. And then he walked into the kitchen where he saw her had climbing onto the drain board into into a window in in her kitchen. Now at that point obviously he felt more frantic. Like if you see someone like opening their window, <laughs> standing on the counter in their kitchen in a high-rise yeah. apartment building, that's a pretty fucking frightening scenario. That's alarming. Yeah. So he says he tried but failed to grab her belt and that she basically went out the window and there was nothing he could do to stop her. In the statement he gave Los Angeles homicide detectives after the incident, he said, she went over to a window, I tried to grab her, and she went out. After interviewing Durston at the scene, um, the the homicide detectives uh, were convinced that she had been, in fact, despondent, depressed, and in an emotional state, and that she was concerned with her identity and her career, and that she had complained 
like as I said before, that she like they were they believed basically all this stuff about her not being her own person and like complaining about this stuff. But all of this is based on his testimony or his eyewitness right. account. They basically were like pretty sure from the set from the start that it was like a young woman desperately unhappy with her life who wanted to end things via suicide. Durston at the time made no mention of her being on acid or even experiencing the effects of a previous trip. His account did change several times during these interrogations, and that did kind of make the investigators suspicious. So they kind of dug into his background a bit more, and that gave them a little bit more cause for concern because that was when they discovered his connection to the Tate murders in particular. He was an early suspect in those slayings, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, One thing to think about at this time, and I, I mentioned this to Rachel earlier. Did I say this in the opening? There was just like a very tense fucking time in L.A. at that point. Yeah. These murders had happened. There were obviously national news. Um, in L.A., people were still didn't know what had happened. They didn't know who did it. They didn't know who had done it. They didn't know, like, was this connected in some way? Like, another fucking person is dying. Like, another sort of celebrity-adjacent person has had, like, an unusual kind of death. So... I mean, I'm just trying to illustrate that the period we're in right now is only two months post these murders, and it was still a very tense uh, time in Hollywood. Now, Diane knew Abigail Folger, one of the victims in the previous, uh, the Tate murders, and she also was an acquaintance of Sharon Tate. Durston was an acquaintance, as I mentioned before, of Wojtek Frukowski. He was um, also an associate of a man named Harvey Dareff, and that was Linkletter's former birth boyfriend and he was also a drug dealer he was actually at cielo drive the day of the murders to drop off or purchase drugs like is some that kind how of he was a suspect uh well this guy is a friend of um durston's oh, okay you're talking about the other yeah guy. so he D- durston was not there the day of but he just had numerous connections or a few connections to the Tate house, the Cielo house where the murders took place. And one of them was the guy who was there. And I think he was also a suspect early on. So now we have this girlfriend of this guy and a friend of this other guy who was a suspect in these murders who also has like a weird death, like just two months later. Obviously there's some ties between Linkletter and the murders of uh, Tate. Um, And this is like a period I was talking to Rachel about before we recorded there's just like this weird period in Hollywood right now that's sort of starting up where you have these Hollywood celebrities and wealthy people, connected people, sort of congregating with people who are sort of more on the fringe, drug addicts, like where they can get drugs. And then they start like partying together and hanging out. Like, so there's like this weird people who aren't in the mixing together. Yeah. So they're getting these drugs from people who are more on the fringe, like the Manson type people. And we all know like the stories about uh, you know, Terry Melcher, Melcher and Dennis Wilson hanging out with the Mansons to get access to drugs and young girls. Um, this is a story I found from October of 1969, and that's like right after uh, Diane Linkletter's death. This guy interviewed, I think he was like a police 
you know, worked for the police department in some capacity. He said, there are about six to 800 people in this community who all know one another. They never get together all at once. They contact each other for pot or drugs. So that's why all these like weird connections are happening. They're kind of all connected through like these drug dealers. Like, sure, I can get you access to this. Call my guy, whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's not that different than probably it is today. So he kind of describes it as these like, He's not speculating in this article about whether those people are responsible for the Tate murders or involved in Diane Linkletter's death, but he kind of describes it as a patchwork of thrill seekers and peripheral celebrities, um, offspring of movie stars and jet setters and hangers on and cast off of children of the rich kind of all involved with these type of uh, fringe people or whatever you want to call them. They obviously have lots of money and these people um, want to take that money from them or live this lifestyle peripherally. Yeah. The fringe people. Uh, he, it's just like, this article is really good and I saw another article about the drug culture in LA at that time that was pretty interesting. So police were definitely starting to think like what's going on here with these people and this lifestyle. So detectives eventually asked Durston if he was willing to take a polygraph test regarding uh, Diane's death and he agreed. The results are never made public and there's no evidence of foul play so he's eventually never charged with anything related to her death. They eventually do have a toxicology report done on her or toxicology test done on her. And the report shows that um, no drugs were in her system at the time of her death. They conclude that her death was a suicide caused by her despondent mental state. Now, the family did not accept that ruling. Yeah. And I feel like that is pretty typical. Like a lot of people have trouble thinking their loved one committed suicide. Or was so depressed that they would do that. Yeah, and they didn't realize it or they didn't do anything in time. Like I feel like that's a typical... Um, it's not unusual. It's not unusual for people to want to think there's another, you know, an alternate reason why what happened happened. And that's definitely the case with the Linkletter family. Her art, her dad art immediately, um, almost immediately calls a press conference. Like he, he does a press conference where he can, he proclaims that the cause of her death was LSD. So, Um, This is literally like a day after. He states that Diane's death wasn't a suicide. She was not herself. She was murdered by the people who manufacture and distribute LSD, which, by the way, was illegal at this time. Like, it had been already sort of illegalized or whatever you call it. Um, He also states that Diane had used LSD LSD, six months prior to her death and that the two had discussed a bum trip she had had. Linkletter hadn't spoken to Diane in the last 24 hours of her life, but he believed that she had taken LSD the night before her death and had experienced um, flashbacks and uh, another bad trip, which caused her to leap to her death. Now, once the toxicology reports came back saying she had no drugs in his system or in her system, he definitely switched focus and said, oh, it was a flash. Like he kind of was like, well, she did have it six months before. It was an acid flashback. So she was having an acid flashback. Now, some things I had read, they say that like people don't necessarily know that acid flashbacks are a thing. I was like, just going to say, have you ever had an acid flashback? No. And it is definitely a controversial, like, sort of opinion. Like yeah. there's no like medical or scientific evidence that flashbacks are something that occur. Yeah. Like people might feel like they've had them and like think or maybe really feel it. Like 
but there's nothing that's there's nothing scientific that says that that's something that will happen, right. especially in like a really big way, like like where you suddenly feel like you're literally hallucinating, right? Again. Yeah. So um, another element to this story: three months before she died um, in July of 1969, um, John Zwire, who was a husband of Art Linkletter's oldest daughter Dawn, had um, shot himself in the head. Uh, in the backyard of his Hollywood home. So they had just experienced a suicide yeah. three months earlier. So I'm I'm guessing that probably plays into thinking that couldn't possibly happen again. Like, do right. you know what I mean? They've already had a, a kind of trauma around that kind of thing. I mean, he is really adamant about this thing. He's even quoted in an April 1970 issue of Good Housekeeping, once again saying, and this is a quote, Diane herself, six months before her death, told us she had an LSD bad trip. We sat down and talked to her for a long time, and she agreed it was dangerous and stupid thing to do. She wouldn't do it again, and I don't think she did, although I can't be sure. Like He's still pushing this. like He pushes this his whole he's life, He's trying basically. to blame some external force. Right. So obviously the press kind of love this angle, of right? Course. Like the LSD angle of course. becomes they can a have big this deal. Whole scary news They circus. add a ton of flourishes. Um, the next thing like that's coming out is that she jumps out of her window high on LSD because she thought she could fly. And now this is a very popular urban legend that will come into play for numerous years after. And this is the origin of that doing LSD and thinking you can fly or doing angel dust or whatever PCP and thinking you can fly. But it all orig- originated with this Diane Link letter story. And all of these like drug stories are always from people who haven't actually done the drugs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, and then other things start kind of being generated from these false rumors. Um, a lot of people start coming forward that she was into heroin at the age of 13. Her drug use continued at a dangerous pace until her death. So these are all just lies. Yeah. Or just speculation. Speculation. Uh, but none of this is really proven to be true in any regard. Um, even if she did experiment with drugs, which I don't doubt she did, because right. most teenagers do, especially probably in at the that late period. 60s and she's 21 <laughs> yeah. then. Yeah. yeah. Come on. So um, one person was interviewed was her ex-husband, Grant Conroy, who I mentioned earlier she was barely married to. Um, they had this whirlwind um romance and marriage, um, but it kind of just ended abruptly. Uh, He really couldn't offer much um, information. He did say that Diane used LSD and speed while they were married, but at the same time, people didn't necessarily buy his story either, because as I said before, she never even lived with him. She lived with her parents the whole time. They got pretty quickly, Yeah, so it's like, who... Did he really even know her? Like, So people kind of were like, eh, like, I don't know. So, I mean, obviously a lot of this, as I mentioned, the flashbacks can never really be proven, or even if she did LSD, one thing that is a fact is that she had zero drugs in her system. Like, that is an undeniable fact. So, after Diane's death, Art Linkletter becomes a prominent anti-drug campaigner, like a literal reefer madness, like next level anti-drug guy. Wasn't he already friends with the Reagans? Right. Well, he's already fr- yeah, he's already friends with the Reagans. So you can just see this period we're building up to that a lot of us grew up with, yeah. with Dare and Just Say No in the eighties. All these like failed yeah. So this is sort of the impetus. Campaigns. I mean, it already had started way back in the twenties, uh, whatever. But now it's like this new thing where it's like Just Say No, like anti drug, da 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 da. Like we all grew up with it, and obviously it didn't work. Uh, 
Especially in Rachel's case. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Rachel did not fall for dare. I didn't. I didn't. I knew it was bullshit. I didn't either. Like, I did have a period where I was kind of anti-drug, like, very brief, but it was mostly based on my parents. Like, I, w- I put, like, marijuana leaflets out after I found a joint and yeah. my mom had friends over. And the next day I spread, I remember like spreading them out in like a circle. Yeah. You know, like just fanning them out. Drug pamphlets. You know, when I was anti-drug briefly was when I was like 11 and I watched the basketball diaries. Ooh, yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I'm never doing drugs. Like after I saw that movie. Yeah. And then like, I totally became that character. <laughs> there were certain things I did feel that way, and like cocaine was definitely one that I was more scared of than pot or alcohol. Um, but then I did cocaine too. But I, I was yeah. kind of like, I had an uncle who died of a cocaine overdose. And uh, when I was a kid, there was a very famous basketball player, Len Bias, who died of a cocaine, some something related to cocaine. And it was like a big news story. So I definitely had those things where yeah. I was like, oh, well, you can't do cocaine. And even the first time I did cocaine, I remember saying to my friends, like, please call 911. <laughs> like, if some, I, I literally thought I would do cocaine once and die. Like, right. I was scared. Uh, anyway, so as we just basically said, he was already kind of like uh, a conservative guy. Yeah. Um, and he was actually on a cross country tour. Um, with his topic that he was discussing called the permissive permissiveness in this society. And he was actually in Colorado on one of these speaking engagements when she died. Uh, irony. Uh, <laughs> so in 1970, he ended up winning the Grammy Award for Best Spoken Word Recording. And it was actually a recording he made with his daughter, Diane, who wow. was now dead. Now, uh, it was like a parent teenager type uh, recording and it was called We Love You Call Collect. The record was released in November 1969, so a few weeks after her death. It sold 275,000 copies in eight weeks. Like it did really well. Um, he sent the royalties from that to combat problems, uh, or like drug abuse charities yeah. or whatever. Um, so the other, the alt, the alt title of this record was also a le- called A Letter to a Teenager. Um, and the flip side of the record had a rebuttal performed by Dan- Diane, which was called Dear Mom and Dad. <laughs> like, it's just such a corny, like, yeah. Do you remember those kind of like, ugh, I just remember those kind of like free, free to be you and me, like whatever those like records. Yeah. Where it was like sort of like this weird inspirational stuff for kids. Like, yeah. I don't know. So uh, in the record, the words, some of the words Art spoke were, um, and he was playing the dad. It wasn't like real, they were playing themselves or something. He says, there can be harm in doing too much and danger in doing too little. A time for holding on and a time for letting go. Someday you too will discover how much courage letting go takes. Your generation wants to be left alone. They want it so that each can find his own thing. But where is this thing for which they search? Um, And then the words he wrote for his daughter in this, which was played by Diane, since I split, I know I have to find things out for myself. I'm living with some kids in a big old house and we help each other. Since being away, I've met a lot of weirdos, pot smokers and speed freaks. (laughs) But I found out how to tell the beautiful, beautiful people from the phonies. I may come home someday, but right now I've got to do what's right for me. So it is like almost really their relationship. Like, yeah, it's so like corny like are you gonna be okay on your own like once you're an adult um but obviously uh 
she dies uh, tragically. And one of her friends, Catherine Oliver, says about Diane, she was always searching for something she could not find and obviously never did find. Yeah. Um, on October 5th, 1969, the day after her death, and this is a side note for me, filmmaker John Waters made a nine-minute film entitled The Diane Linkletter Story. Like, he literally did this the day after she died, That's Rachel. incredible. And it's a fictionalized version of the events surrounding her death. So this is a 16-millimeter short. Um, it stars Divine, Mary Vivian Pierce, and David Lockery, who are both in Female Trouble. Uh, it's an improvised film based on her suicide or her death. Um, and Divine plays Diane Linkletter. Amazing. Now, obviously, I looked <laughs> through hell and high water to find anything I could see about this film, and I couldn't find anything. I mean, this is like before he was famous. This is like. This is his first thing. I mean, it's literally like Mr. and Mrs. Linkletter fretting about their daughter's behavior, take. Who she, and, and if she's taking drugs and dating a low life named Jim, uh, the Look, parents eventually confront her, and that results in her suicide. You know, under the influence of LSD. Waters claims that the film was accidental; that he and his friends were just improvising the story the next day dude. after it happened, while they were testing their new like cameras and, yeah. and sound equipment, etc. Uh, and that is the equipment they do later use on multiple maniacs. Um, so the film is pretty much unreleased. It is released eventually in 1990 on a videotape that's like a d- we need to get that tape double feature. I know. I feel like we should ask our friend Jake Fulgonas. He probably has it. Yeah, I you're bet. right. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, Divine plays Diane. <laughs> Link letter. I know it's insane. And then Mary Vivian Pierce and David Lockery, who are the couple in Female Trouble, play her parents. That's amazing. (laughs) So it's like I don't care if this is a piece of shit. Like I need to see this piece of shit. You know, you just know that Divine falling through a window is hilarious. Yeah. So John Waters in a 2015 interview. Uh, he does say that this short is the worst thing he's ever done. <laughs> like, but I don't think it really matters. And I don't think it was like, if they're just improvising to test camera, you can just imagine the quality of this yeah. nonsense. It's probably unintentionally uh, hilarious. He says it was ad libbed basically like it's just, it wasn't even written. There was just, I can imagine all of these people, which would have been me if I was in my early twenties when this happened, inappropriately laughing my ass off. <laughs> making like a comedy film about a tragedy that literally like do you know what I mean like it's just so awful but like I could picture myself being like oh like you know edgelordy bullshit whatever so and the um the incident was in popular culture in a few other ways including in David Foster Wallace's um posthumous novel The Pale King uh the lead character in that book talks about uh, psychedelics frightening him because of Art Linkletter's death. Art Linkletter. I mean, I'm sorry. Diane. Art Linkletter's daughter's death. And as I mentioned before, this death really spread this urban legend about the idea that you take LSD and think you can fly and kill yourself by falling off a building. Correct. I mean, not correct. But yes, (laughs) that is the urban legend. Uh, and I feel like it is most famously depicted in something that haunted me from a very early age, and that is the Helen Hunt after-school special called Desperate Lives, which is iconic. It's one of the most incredible things ever. Right. And it's like, I was mentioning to Rachel before, like, it's one of those things when I go back and watch it, I'm like, yep, 
it's exactly as good as I remember or like insane as I remember. Right. Like it doesn't disappoint. I bet you you can at least find that scene on YouTube. You can YouTube. find the clip. I've watched it a million times If you times can't on find YouTube. the whole thing. Um, I did speak to Rachel that we might be doing a, a sort of uh, recap or uh, review of that episode on a bonus episode on Patreon last month because I feel like that's a funny thing to do for a Patreon bonus, like reviews or recaps of after school specials from back in the day. I've used that gift many times of Helen Hunt yeah. screaming and falling out. If you the haven't window. seen it, it's basically Helen Hunt. Uh, She's very she takes, young. I think it's Angel Dust. And she literally goes fucking crazy and jumps right out a glass window and survives. I, I, I mean, it's, yeah. I so, don't know how she survives that fall, first of all. It's an insane fall. <laughs> she's like barely injured. No, like, she's still, like, she's, <laughs> she's still, still twitching and she's like. She's still mo- moving around. She's and, still, like, I mean, it's like, it's like that adrenaline, I guess, that Angel does gives you, right? <laughs> like, it's such a reefer madness level yeah, insanity insane. about drug use, but it's. I mean, it's high art. So if you haven't seen it, go check it out. I'm sure it's on YouTube. Okay. So I have one more story that is related to all of this, believe it or not. And that is the mysterious death of another TV personality. And that TV personality's name is Carol Wayne. Now, Carol Wayne was born in Chicago, Illinois, and she kind of began her... TV or show business career as a figure skater in an ice capade type show with her younger sister, Nina. They were called the Wayne sisters and they later became showgirls um, in the Follies, like a Follies type show at the Tropicana Resort and Casino in Las Vegas. At that point, she, uh, Carol follows her sister, Nina, to Hollywood in the mid 60s and they began appearing in TV shows, you know, that were whatever happening during that period. She starts doing like guest spots on I Spy, which is, you know, a show with like Bill Cosby. Uh, it was a pretty big show of the day. Um, she's in Bewitched, I Dream of Jeannie, like all of the 60 shows you need to be in, right? <laughs> she's in Love American Style, Emergency. Uh, and it also, like Diane Linkletter, appears on The Red Skelton Show. She's eventually kind of discovered at a Hollywood par- party where she auditions for The Tonight Show. Um, by the way, she's kind of like, a very classic blonde bimbo type. Yeah. And I'm not saying she's a bimbo, but that's the character she becomes most famous for. She's really busty. She's attractive. She has bleach blonde hair and she does that dumb blonde kind yeah. of shtick. Like that's her shtick. Uh, and she does well with it. Like great, good for her. So her biggest sort of fame comes from these appearances she makes on the tonight show, which she did from 1967 to 1984. Uh, she has over 100 plus appearances on The Tonight Show, and she plays um, this character called the Matinee Lady. Um, there's like a, he has a sort of sketch, Johnny Carson has a sketch on the show that's really popular called Art Ferns Tea Time Movie Sketches. And they're kind of very sexual, double entendre. He has this blonde bimbo sidekick doing like, ooh, oh, like this yeah. kind of things. And it's just, it's like a big popular sketch and she kind of becomes famous from this. Um, She also appears on like Hollywood Squares and like all these kind of game show things at this point, Celebrity uh, Sweepstakes. And she does appear in films too, including um, The Party, which was directed by Blake Edwards and this movie called Savannah Smiles. Did you ever see that movie? No, but it's with, um, it's with, what's her name? (laughs) 
It's literally one of my favorite movies from when I was a kid. Of course it is, Desi. <laughs> Honestly. I don't remember her in it. Like, wait, wait, I, I haven't seen the, that movie. What's the child actor's name? Oh, I can't remember. No, but she was in one of my favorites from childhood, which was uh, the fairy tale theater Hansel and Gretel. Oh, I can't remember her name, but she probably will be an episode at yeah, some point. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm like kicking myself. Anyway, I fucking love... Uh, I love that movie. I haven't seen it in a really long time. But I did do like an improv once where I referenced it and people were losing their shit because it was so stupid. <laughs> but I was like very happy because everyone thought I was it. making it up because I was trying to describe what the movie is, was about. And people were like, oh my God, that was hilarious. And I was like, no, it's a real movie. <laughs> like, I'm not that funny. Like, it's real. I mean, I did describe it in a hilarious way. So she also goes on to model in Playboy. She has like a big uh, feature or a spread in the February <laughs> 1984 issue. Um, but her career or her financial situation starts going pretty bad at this point. She files for bankruptcy that same year. She is married three times um, to various type of men, including um, some sort of well-known Barry Feinstein who is a rock music photographer. They have a son together. And then she also marries um, a producer, a TV and film producer named Bart, Bert Sugarman. Um, and they divorce in 1980. At some point, uh, The Tonight Show kind of cuts from 90 to 60 minutes. And he has to cut like segments. Um, so she kind of... Um, loses her segment on that. And that's when her financial uh, situation gets really bad. One interesting thing I saw on her like Wikipedia page, there's not like a lot of information about her is that she was really into gardening and growing bonsai trees. I've kind of always wanted to have bonsai trees. I was just going to say, remember when bonsai trees were like really trendy? Yes. Like in the nineties. And they were so cute, like cutting those little, like trimming them so you could make them grow a certain way. Like I've always wanted to have one. We should get some. Yeah. I like them. So, she kind of loses, you know, some of her big gig. Uh, she has financial problems. And then she also starts um, having some drug and alcohol issues as well. So there are rumors towards the end of her life that she also started being like an escort for rich men. So who the hell knows? Go for it. And I say um, in January of 1985, she goes to um, the Los Hottest Resort in Manzanillo, Coma, Mexico, with a companion named Ed Durston. Oh, who we know from previous cases in this story, the woman, the man who was with Diane Linkletter and a suspect in the Tate murders. Yeah. Um, according to reports. The couple are there together. At some point, they have an argument about where they're going to stay the evening before they were scheduled to go back to Los Angeles. Durston checks into a hotel, and, rep- and Wayne reportedly leaves him in a kind of, fear, you know, a huff. Like, they're in a fight. You leave. Yeah. You're like, fuck you. I'm going. Whatever. And she goes to walk along the beach to cool off. What year is this? Oh, fuck. I think it's 1985. But... You can double check. 1984, 1985. Uh, So she goes for a walk on the beach, and that's the last time anyone sees her alive. A local fisherman named Abel de Dios finds her body floating in the shallow bay waters three days later. Oh, my God. Carol, according to friends, was deathly afraid of water and would not have gone swimming late at night like that. Uh, And the water she was found in was only four feet deep. This is like... I always feel like this was like the Natalie Wood too, like these people kind of dying 
in a way that is their biggest fear. Right. It's so creepy to me. So Mexican, Mexican authorities obviously are like wondering how she came to drown in these waters, especially that they were only four feet deep. She's fully clothed. Um, there's no cuts or abrasions on her body. So it's not like she fell on nearby rocks and knocked herself out. Uh, there was no like signs of, um, you know, injuries outside of her body. The coroner eventually, uh, stated that her death occurred three to four days before her body was found. Was it ruled drowning? Her body is testing, her body tested negative for drugs and alcohol. So it's a suspicious death. She is eventually identified by workers at the resort where she had stayed. Um, when locals went to look for the companion that she was with at Durston, he had checked out of the room three days earlier, leaving her luggage at the airport with a message that she would pick up her bags in the morning. So he bailed on her literally the next morning. And took her shit to the airport yeah. for her? Why? I have no idea. Like I would be pissed if like I woke up and my luggage was gone. Right. So... Yeah, her her death was basically ruled an accidental drowning. There was no evidence that he did anything to her or could they couldn't prove foul play, but it's a fucking the, she wasn't drunk or on drugs. Like that's right. crazy to me because I could buy that she was drunk and fucking passed out and well, like there right. could be something if she had a lot of that drugs and alcohol. That just seems really odd. Yeah, and they had had a fight and could also she like, have floated over to this 4-inch water? I guess, but like, why was, was she fully open? clothed? Like, why was she swimming in the water? Like, yeah. people are like, she would never have been swimming, which I know you, you never know. But, like, the whole thing is just really suspicious. Right. Like, obviously, like, accidental <laughs> weird deaths happen and freak accidents happen. Right. But there was, like, no contusions on her, her that she knocked herself out in any way. Or even any post-mortem uh, contusions or abrasions from floating in the water. Right. So, Yeah. It's just a weird... Like if she would have hit rocks or something. Right, and floated out and then got put on shore again or yeah. something. Uh, but it is sus- suspicious that this guy fucking... Three... He just left, like... Yeah. <laughs> if she didn't she didn't come back the next day and he just fucking left, like... Even if you got into a fight with someone, if you go on a vacation with someone and they just disappear, aren't you, like, searching for them or file a missing persons report? Yeah. So he was never charged with anything. Wow. Uh, and... I think he just basically died in obscurity after that. But it's kind of crazy to have so many connections to some pretty high profile cases like throughout your life. Like, like where you're like, (laughs) can you imagine like having even one? A witness slash suspect to three different deaths. Yeah, that are all high profile in some way or another. Like, and then just just have nothing. Like, that's pretty crazy. Like, even if I was him, I'd be like, whoa, what's wrong with me? Like, yeah. what's my pro? Do I am did I like break a hundred fucking mirrors and my like right. bad luck? Like it's crazy. Like, yeah, and he just kind of nothing. Like that's it. Like wow. just like a weird fucking string of connections. Yeah, that all result or all lead back to the Tate murders. Uh, and up until like 1985, like this sort right. of string of things happening. It's just like a weird. But yeah, if he was still kind of dealing drugs, maybe he was just this drug dealer to celebrity people and he just had these connections with all these women. Like, I don't know. So right. that's pretty much the end of that. That's, that's wild, story. Desi. Yeah. I had never, I mean, I just didn't know any of those cases at all. I knew the Diane Linkletter and I do think some people have mentioned doing Carol Wayne in the Facebook group or on yeah. Twitter or whatever. And I didn't really know her. 
But looking when I saw her, I was like, oh yeah, I remember that type like, right. of woman. Like seeing that type of character was still kind of in the eighties. Totally. You would still see it, like the Audrey Landers, yeah. Judy Landers type yes. uh, blonde bimbo character. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, but I didn't really obviously watch the Tonight Show back then. <laughs> but like, yeah. So. Yeah, that's the case. Cool. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Very interesting. So, yeah, check out our Facebook group where you can tell us cases too. Right. We we talk about true crime stories on the page. We talk about episodes that we've covered. Food. That we, we talk like about to eat. food. <laughs> people are like, I know it's not. People will post sometimes. They'll be like, I know it's not crime related, but I felt you guys would appreciate this. And it's like a picture of something they ate. I always want to see what. Yeah, you Yeah, we want to see what you ate. Yeah, that's it's related just, to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Anything that's related to Hollywood crime scene, you can post right. about. So we will be posting pictures on Instagram, so you can follow us there to see pictures related to all the cases we cover. Yeah. Rachel mentioned the Patreon. You can go there to support us if you want to. There's yeah. tons of bonus content. Yeah, you're getting something for yeah. $5 a month, yeah. so don't worry. And then uh, we sometimes do Twitter. We're trying to be better. <laughs> and if you want to help the show, you can also leave us a five-star review. Right. And that's very helpful, too, and we love it and appreciate it. Yeah. Because we're good people, you know? It's really hot. It's really hot right now, so I'm it kind is. of getting delusional. Right. Um, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and look forward we're looking forward to doing more stories yeah. Manson related for August. It'll be a fun month. So right. keep listening. And that's that. Yep. Bye. Bye.